Hey, Risto here at George Mason University. I'm here with Ali Gray uh, from the Department of Sociology at the University of Toronto to discuss the article titled, It's Just Safer When I Don't Go There, Trans People's Locker Room Membership and Participation in Physical Activity. Uh, the article was just published in 2022 in the Journal of Homosexuality. Uh, you can find the full site of this article in the notes. Um, Ali, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Hey, so it's a pleasure to be here. One of the questions that I want to start off with is to just have you explain the different terms, trans women, cisgender women, um, trans men, because right. I think in the podcast, we talk a lot about these terms and I don't want people listening to kind of be thinking, what do they mean by that? So, uh, so can you just right, explain like the key terms, just really briefly, trans women, cis women, things like that? Yeah. Okay. So a terminology checkpoint or pit stop. Um, so cisgender is a term that refers to someone whose gender expression, gender identity, how they like, how, like, you know, how they identify as man or woman um, is consistent with the gender they were assigned at birth. Right. So baby born, born, you know, um, and is identified as girl by the doctor and then grows up to be a woman. Mm -hmm. Cisgender woman. Uh, same goes for man. Uh, Non-binary, or maybe I'll do trans first. Okay, so trans woman is someone who, when they were a little baby, when they came out, the doctor was like, this here is a boy. And uh, and then as they grew up, um, at whatever point, they were like, I am not a boy. I'm a girl. And then transitioned, you know, socially or medically, and you don't have to do both um, and to become a trans woman. And then a trans man, you know, someone who, as a little baby, was identified as a girl, grows up to become a proud trans man. Yeah. Non-binary are folks who, uh, you know, don't fit in either of those, fit between, fit in both. Like, yeah, just aren't really, you know, um, captured in the categories of uh, male and female, boy and girl, awesome. men and women. Um, and the lexicon is changing, like how we describe these words is changing all the time. And that is awesome because society and gender is fluid and not static and like carved in stone. So yeah. celebrate that. Awesome. Everyone. So, and I, and I think that that will help clarify a lot of what, uh, what we'll talk about in the podcast. I'm wondering if you can start off by just giving us an overview of the barriers faced by uh, trans people to affiliate and engage in sport and physical activity. Yeah, awesome. Um, so there are a lot of barriers. And I mean, for that article, I really focused on the locker room in specific, but I also tried to, you know, start the article by giving an overview. Um, of other areas that extend beyond, you know, and I think it's in the media a lot right now um, about um, barriers that are actually happening before you get to the locker room for trans and non-binary, you know, athletes. Um, and, and when I say athletes, I mean like competitive athletes and recreational athletes, right? So in the States, I'm, I'm here, I'm, I'm in Canada, but it's hard to not see everything that's happening in the States in terms of legislation. And, and so a lot of this legislation is actually blocking trans girls. And, I'm, and it's like, I'm, I'm saying trans girls specifically because they actually don't care about trans boys. Because mm -hmm. it's like, well, if they're female at birth, they definitely won't have an advantage over um, boys, right? And, and so you can really see the like implicit understanding that, you know, that, that boys are more powerful than girls. Boys are faster than girls. And then we need to protect girls from boys. And like, and, and, then, and then trans girls get immediately coded as boys in that in that sort of framing. So so there's a lot of legislation that is actually stopping, you know, young people who want to compete not to like like win money or like like who want to be members of society mm -hmm. and want to like have an ordinary like participation in social life of which we have promised everyone, you know? And, and so um, there's a lot of rhetoric around like uh, you know, them being like, like threatening women's sports and stuff like that. And the fact is on no occasion has a trans woman athlete ever dominated women's sports ever. And they've been competing, like trans women have been competing in sports for like, for 
probably longer than we know, but at least decades we've known. So anyway, that's my little like rant about that. So, you know, legislation, um, locker rooms is a big one. I'm trying to sort of lead that because I know we're going to talk about that in more detail, but, um, you know, microaggressions too, right? Like, um, there is like sport is the area that is so far behind other parts of, you know, society. Like in Canada, you can get a driver's license with the gender X on it. It's a fairly straightforward process. Not, I'm not saying it's not rigorous and like can be demeaning at other times, but there's a straightforward process for changing, you know, identification. Um, but when it comes to sport, it's like, it's, it, we're really far behind. Um, and you know, barriers are like men's teams and women's teams only, you know, men's locker rooms and women's locker rooms only that leaves some people in between. It leaves a lot of other people not knowing where, where to fit in or where they'll be accepted. Um, yeah. So that's sort of like my, my brief overview of, of the state of the. Yeah. And, and in your, uh, in your paper, you talked about this like cisgender locker rooms, like for someone like me to go into locker room and, you know, I, I never thought about it. Like, of course, when I was younger and more insecure and going to middle school, physical education, a locker room was awkward. Right. But I'm also from Finland where like going into public baths and things like that are completely like different. Like I grew up when I was in Finland, like it was mixed gender saunas that people would go in. And so that was, that was different. But then for me going into a locker room, even though earlier on it was like awkward as I was growing up when I, like, I never thought about the things that you've listed in your paper of, of just a different, I don't know, like uh, an assumption on my part. Like it was just like something that I completely didn't think about. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering if you can go into talking about the fairness principle that you talked about in your paper, um, and how, how it limits in terms of governing sport and trans people's inclusion in sport. Yeah, for sure. And I just wanted to, before I do that, I just wanted to briefly touch on two things that I, that are really important about what you just shared. You know, it's like the, the not thinking about it, Mm -hmm. right? We don't think about it. You see two doors, like man, woman, for a lot of people, for cisgender people, for a lot of cisgender people, I'm not going to say all cisgender people though, right? Um, you know, it's just automatic. You go into, you don't even think about it, but for a lot of, like, there's a, there's a significant like percentage of the population for which like going through, not even just choosing one of those doors, but going through it, you know, how it's going to go. People are going to start to, you know, ask you in the wrong place. Look at the sign, you know, like, look, look, look at you, look at the sign again, look at you. And then like, apologize. Like, it's just, it's a, it's a lot. And there's like a, you know, affective, there's like a, um, like a physical, um, labor and, and energy output that comes just going through it. And, and I, you know, and you also said about how it's awkward when you were a kid. And I think that's a really, like, it's a, it's awkward for a lot of cisgender people. It's awkward for a lot of, you know, queer cisgender people, like lesbian, gay, bisexual, and also for straight people, like, especially for gender non-conforming, you know, like small boys, strong girl, like, and, and like racialized folks, like there's a lot of people for whom the locker room is, a really awkward, if not dangerous mm-hmm. place. Um, and so, you know, I'm really trying to think about how my research was focused on making locker rooms or thinking about how locker rooms could be more, um, could be safer and less of a barrier to sport and physical activity for trans and non-binary people. It's also like, what about if these changes made, you know, locker rooms like feel safer for other, for everyone, like, you know, more privacy, um, like I don't want to say more surveillance, but like an open concept thing. So like no one's no one's worried about getting well. But fewer people are worried about getting cornered, or mm-hmm. like having to show parts of themselves that they're not really ready to show yet, or how to show. You know, like it's it's a really vulnerable space because yeah. it's we're naked. You know, it's the only place in the public sphere, at least that I'm thinking of right now, where people are naked. Mm-hmm. You know, um, obviously there's exceptions to that, but right. Um, so, well, so so fairness. Yeah. What uh what right, part fairness. of like okay. the the principle of fairness limits the governing sports and trans people's inclusion in sport? Yeah, so that's a good question. You know, so much of so much of the debates about should trans people be allowed to play sport, which 
and by that, I mean, we're really thinking about should trans women be allowed to play sports? And by that, we're really thinking about should trans women be allowed to be members of society? Because sport is about playing, like participating in sport is about participating in society. Um, that question, like at the heart of debates about it, uh, is a question of fairness, right? You know, the most, like, in the, the rhetoric goes, the most important thing about sport, and I believe in this, sport is, sport, it, like, when sport is fair, that is, then it's, like, that's, that's one of the uh, foundational principles of sport. I, I would be hard-pressed to find anyone to disagree with that, you know what I'm saying? But the thing that gets tricky is how we evaluate fairness, right? And one of the key, um, one of the key principles around which sport has been, like around which fairness in sport has been built is a little, like it, it's not consistent. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm, I'm being very vague and I'm gonna try to make this more concrete. So the idea of physiological equivalency, right? Everyone should have a, le a level playing field. Therefore, the, may the best competitor win and it will be a fair competition. The thing that gets tricky is when physiological equivalency is assumed to be gender, mm -hmm. right? Okay, and so, and so the idea goes, we sort all the athletes into male and female, then there will be a fair playing field. And, you know, for sure, like the average male competitor runs faster than the average female competitor, the average male box, but that's not always the case. Right. You know what I mean? Like if you were to pick, like I can't tell you how many guys I beat up in the boxing ring and, and so, like, it, it, because I was taller, because I was heavier, because my limbs were longer. So there's, there's right, like, there's these other factors that we are not considering, right? Um, you know, height, weight, age, uh, ability. Um, well, maybe ability kind of gets folded into the other ones. But, like, uh, you know, class, if you want to go and compete internationally, having the money to, like, pay for for your trips until the government, like until you get a sponsorship or something is in, invaluable where you're born, you know, that's going to affect the coaching you get, the training you get, um, your ability to travel for competition, like the, the, the merit your passport has. Right. But so, so if we're going to talk about fairness and everyone having a level playing field, then we should be considered like, if that is the governing principle of sport, right. Then we got to think about all these things. If that's what we're saying we're doing, mm -hmm. but instead we're just we're taking one thing, which is gender, and then that becomes the grounds for physiological equivalency. Like, okay, but then the thing that happens is that for, because trans women were were born male or trans girls have you know were assigned male at birth, then that becomes uh, grounds to discredit them from competing. And the thing that's really screwed up is you know like if they win they lose. Because it's like, well, of course you've won. Right. If you lose, you lose. Like, can you imagine going on the playing field no matter what and having that? And really, you just want to participate and like be a member of your peer group. Yeah. You know. Um. So that, that's what I think. And I think the the thing that really comes down to it, you know, is um, is are we going to decide fairness or justice? Hmm. Right. Fairness. You know, our understanding of fairness, as I've as I've tried to you know, argue is really flawed in sports because it picks, it picks and it chooses. Like think about, um, Oh my God, I'm forgetting his name. The swimmer, Ian Phelps, right? Yeah. No, uh, I'm close. Phelps I, is right. Yeah. I don't remember the first name, but yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Phelps, like look at his wingspan. Yeah. It is, it is like disproportionate to like the possibilities of most like mm -hmm. athletes. And, and so if we're going to talk about, then he should probably be in a different class. Some people have a different composition, right? So it's just like, it's like this, um, it's a rabbit hole that you go down. If you want fairness, okay, let's do it. But then you have to look at this. You're going to have to look at that. Um, let's talk about justice, right? To exclude a whole category of athletes from, from the benefits of sport in terms of social cohesion, in terms of personal growth, in terms of, um, you know, the stories that we tell about ourselves from being athletes and participating in athletics at whatever level, you know, what we learn about ourselves through competing. If you're going to exclude them based on like the gender they were assigned at birth, like that's not justice. Yeah. Right. So, and it's, and it's nothing, so, uh, nothing they have done to then for society to exclude them and to get to a certain age. And you're like, I love soccer. And all of a sudden you're like, 
oh, no, you can't play. Or I love to swim. It's like, no, you can't participate in this sport without anything that they've done. And one of my students forwarded me this really long article that's, uh, that I'll link to. I don't remember who the author is, but it's a, a medical doctor that talked about um, you know, the, the differences between like men versus women at elite level sports, like 100 meter sprint and all these different sports that shows that there's like a 10 to 12% or depending on the sport, elite level difference and speeds for a 100 meter sprint. But, and they talked exactly what you were talking about of the training, the nutrition, the sports psychology, the uh, physiological, just having a bigger wing, wingspan or you know type one, type two muscle fibers and all these different things that, you know, if I started training for the 100 meter dash, like, I would get smoked in all competitions in any competition just because that's not mm-hmm. what I've been training for for my life and I feel like that can be mm-hmm. the level playing field and it it was interesting that article talked about how um, long distance swimming the difference was only like four percent and women were beating men and like they have um, you know the records and stuff and different like Catalina swims and things like that um, and versus strength training like Olympic weightlifting and how that difference is way bigger but they talked about how strength training and Olympic weightlifting hasn't been even in uh, a sport that was a, a, a approachable for certain people for so long because it was such a hyper masculine uh, space but it's a it's a good good read to kind of understand a little bit of more of like it's it's very scientific very like scientific difference to it and it talks about what type of language to use when discussing you know transgender athletes and and you're right they focused a lot on trans women that's you know there is no real issue about the the other way and the thing the thing is that like is kind of shocking i mean when we think about this like um you know like it gets taken for granted that trans women have an advantage. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, it's so built in our psyche that it's just like, yeah, of course they do. Mm-hmm. That's the assumption. And like, like for sure, let, like that, that makes sense as an assumption based on how we are conditioned to think about gender. But when you think about it empirically, that is not actually the case. Like there, there, there aren't studies that are, that are proving that trans women athletes are better than cisgender women athletes. And, and that seems, it seems, probably seems like I'm lying to you because of how, um, how we hold this assumption that trans women are better athletes. But like there, if you look at the literature, there just have not been studies. The studies that have been there are comparing, you know, cis men to cis women. That's not what we're talking about, right? We're talking about a different group of athletes. And, and, and the, the ones that do compare trans women to trans, uh, excuse me, to cisgender women are not looking at athletes. They're looking at like sedentary, you know, normal folk, and and, and like, it, and we have all of these policies excluding these groups of 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 athletes, and there is an absolute dearth or like lack of 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 literature mm-hmm. in terms of empirical studies. This is how trans women athletes can like compete compared to cisgender women athletes. I mean, and it's like it's it's um the the level that of you know of androgens and testosterone that, that trans women are held to if they want to compete like at an elite level is I'm like, it's lower than it is in my body. Like it's absolutely punitive and like, and it's not based in science right. because they're just picking, like they haven't done the research. They're picking mm-hmm. an arbitrary. Yeah. And there's been a lot of outcry about that, you know, in terms of scholarship, in terms of activism, like they, they're not like, it's not scientific because we're, there's such a, I hate the word hysteria, but there is a hysteria about trans women and trans girls participating in the sport. And so, you know, and there's also this idea, this like kind of neoliberal idea that like, you know, like, like what, okay, what percentage of athletes are going to the Olympics or like earning their income from, from sport? I I, I mean, I can make up a statistic, but it's not very big. It's a very, very, very tiny number. Girls, they want to play sport. Like they're not, they're not, 
maybe they're trying to go to the Olympics. You know, like that, that's a part of a lot of people's story because that's how we become the people who we become. But like, geez, Louise, it's not, it's not this like pandemic of trans women trying to take over women's sports. That's just not happening. That has never happened. And like, you know, it, it makes sport richer to see mm-hmm. people of, of different gender expressions of different, like, that's how you learn. Like one of the principles of sport is goodwill, yeah. you know, to, to learn how to love your competitor, to learn how to respect them. And it's like, I can't imagine a better way to like, you know, to grow. And the last thing I'll just say is, you know, when the Olympics started in like end of the early 19th century, the idea of women participating was seen as abhorrent and impossible. And like Pierre de Coubertin, who was a total butthead, was mm-hmm. like, but also like he created the Olympics was like, no, there's no way. And today we're going through this with trans women, right? So one day in the future, we're not going to be thinking about this. Like the, the future of women's sports has trans women in it. Like there's just, the debate is over, you know? It's interesting because I, I was going to ask that question of where you see the future of it. Like, let's get through this hysteria part in 50 years, 100 years you think that this is going to kind of like disappear and that's not going to be uh, a conversation anymore. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like when I read some, I'm right now I'm read editing a book, a book with uh, Helen Lenski and maybe we can put like the title in the, in your notes or something, mm-hmm. but we have this great chapter by this um, incredible, like uh, athlete activist Travers um, just want just one word name Travers. Um, and they're writing, like, we're like, okay, well, well, how do you see the future? And they're like, they're so radical. They're like phasing out, you know, like we're going to phase out gender. And I don't know if I like, like, I, I admire that. That's it. I don't see, I don't know. I like, I don't know. I don't know if that's where we're going to go, but you know, like, I know that the future of sport, like if I'm going to keep loving sport, like won't be excluding a whole group of women because like they're like like I just can't imagine that happening I mean I think you know I have um I have a friend Robin Maynard who's like a one of the key activists in in the movement of Black Lives Canada and and just as like Trump was happening a few years ago and like there was like all of this uprising of like conservative like white supremacy she was like it's the last stand they are getting really loud because this they know this is the last stand and they know that like, you know, they have to um they're gonna lose. And so I, I kind of try to I mean, I think it's also we have to be careful about being polarized because like yeah. that's when people stop like listening is when I'm on this side and you're on that side. And I think there is a lot of like concern about about women's sports and I also understand that, right? Like women's sports has been underfunded. Um, there's been like a lot of sexual abuse, like there's all this stuff, but I don't think that the advocates of women's sport focusing their attention on trans women is going to solve the problem. Like we have real issues we have to address mm-hmm. together, like for all women in sport and, and like arguing about whether trans women count as women, like, come on guys, like let's actually do something that matters. So future women's sports definitely has trans women in it. I hope it has. And like, it's coming. Like look at the women's soccer team in the U S like, yeah, they're way better than the men's soccer team and like people know it and celebrate it. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but I, I don't see it doing away with gender categories as, as the future, yeah. you know, like I think, um, gender, gender categories can be oppressive. They can be exclusive. They can be painful, but they can also be a home. Yeah. They can also be a refuge for, for trans and non-binary students yeah. as well. Absolutely. You know, like, um, so that's a great question. We should have another chat in like five years and, see where we end up yeah so let me let me jump back into the focus of your study why did you focus on locker rooms and i know we talked about this you alluded to this a little bit before but i i wonder if you have anything to add of why you focused on locker rooms specifically yeah it's that's a great question i love that question i it's actually very personal so i was in 2015 i was competing for team canada um, as a boxer in the women's division. And I, so I was traveling like all over the world and everywhere, like when we, when we go into a gym or when I go into a gym on my own, it would, and it would depend, 
I would have like the same reaction all around the world when I go into a locker room and it would be like, it would be, I'm, it would be like, you know, like, excuse me, like <laughs> this is the women's or like it's sometimes not in English, you know, or like pointing in the sign or like, like looking at the sign. Like I once had someone like trace the sign with their hands and she was like a seeing person on, um, you know, or like confrontations. Um, but I'm white and like, charming and pretty good to get around stuff so it but it was still like it still has like a cost you know like your heart my heart would quicken before I go in and like it would happen in washrooms too and it's like in the airport it's like yeah so that was my experience in uh, locker rooms and restrooms and then you know I I was back in Toronto finishing my undergrad between like and it was also between competitions and I went into the locker room at the athletic center there and I had a really different experience. Um, and at the time there were like these huge, it was called the change room project. They had these huge posters on the wall of like, uh, like enormous, like ceiling to floor quotations about like people who had similar experiences to me about what it like to go into the wash, the, the washroom or the locker room, you know, like people stare at me, like, I don't know where to go. I try to go with a friend. It helps when I go with a friend. Um, and really just like, like just really detailed daily experiences of folks um, who are, you know, trans or non-binary or gender non-conforming going into a locker room and restroom. And my experience in that locker room in Toronto was completely different. Mm. It was absolutely incredible. I remember going in and like women like smiling, like not like giving me recognition that I belonged there. It, and it was like, it was so powerful and touching. And I was like, this, this is my place, you know? Um, obviously that's like inf- affected by like a lot of other things, including my race, including, you know, my classroom and the university, that stuff. But I just started getting really curious about locker rooms. Um, and then for my master's um, thesis, I, I wanted to study that. I wanted to see what people's experiences were you know, uh, looking across race, class, disability, body size. So I'm, I'm athletic and I wanted like, you know, folks who aren't, um, who don't have bodies that are like deemed as normatively attractive or acceptable, like how, what are their experiences like? How are they different? How are they similar? Um, and so I did some interviews. Yeah. Awesome. So you, you also talked about the sociological concept of membership, uh, in the study. Uh, can you explain that? Yeah, so membership, you know, um, membership and belonging. There's this idea, like, I think a lot about when we talk about, you know, trans and non-binary people in public space and sport and in um, public space, we think about rights, you know, and, like, rights is, like, this legal frame that's super important. But I'm more interested in, like, membership, right? Like, membership is, like, you can't, isn't something that's determined, like, by, you know, a piece of legislation that I know nothing about, but like can legally protect me if someone violates my rights. Like rights is this very abstract concept um, that is difficult to see how it translates into, you know, more meaningful experiences. Like, like I described about the, about how I responded to the women in the locker room, like smiling or like nodding and recognition. Um, Membership is about like feeling like you belong on like a deep level. You know, like it's like going into a space and feeling feeling at home in it, right? Like not thinking about going into it. And that's what I really think. And I spend a lot of time thinking about membership and I don't have sort of like a finished, uh, a finished um, arrival point about it. But I think I think membership is really when you like when you go somewhere and you don't have to think about it, you know, and you see and you can also see your membership reflected back at the eyes of people there, you know, and I hope I like what better experience is there? You know, we have membership in our, well, hopefully it, it's, it's great to have membership in your family and your, in your school and your community, like where people recognize you, whether they know you or not, but like they recognize your belonging. I think that's like um, profoundly important to like well being. And I think the other thing is like, you know, physical activity, like it can be hard to get your butt to the gym, to like do that workout, to go out for a jog, to, to whatever and it's like membership really helps and belonging you know being part of the community or like even just like having people smile at you when you jog by 
that kind of stuff. It really makes physical activity more accessible, more enjoyable, yeah. you know? And so, so what happens when people don't have membership in locker rooms, I argue is that, um, is that the physical activity kind of gets blocked off, mm-hmm. you know, the locker room is the gateway or the like, it's like the portal to physical activity. If you can't get through the locker room, you're going to have a heck of a time getting into the gym, getting into the pool. Like, I mean, I don't know how you would get in the pool, right? Because most pools, you can only get through, well, a lot of pools, um, you can only get through, you know, the change room. That, so, that was the, so that's uh, sort of how I thought about belonging. That was what I was thinking too, because the, the pool we have at the mm-hmm. university, you walk through you check in you go to the locker room and then you go into the pool and so that's a very like good example of if you don't feel comfortable in that middle space there's no other way to get in there you know and a lot of pools like you have to shower before you go into the pool to go through and uh, but as you're talking about membership it, it strikes me that there are probably a lot of people who listen to this and have never thought about membership because they feel like they always belong especially those, you know, cisgender men or women who are good at almost all sports and they're like just very athletic and they feel, they don't think Mm -hmm. about the membership because they feel comfortable going everywhere they go. They're just like very comfortable in their skin Mm -hmm. and they haven't thought about another person who comes in and looks at that sign on the wall or that door frame and goes, has to reconsider entering. So I think it's, you know, it's the same thing with, with privilege and, and in essence in a lot of different things yeah. of just walking in and not, not ever considering another person who might be behind you think, thinking or questioning. And I think mm-hmm. that's it's good for health and PE teachers as well to, to think about, you know, if you're listening and you have students who are, um, you know, that aren't cisgendered students, they might have a very different experience every time they walk into a health and physical education class because they have to go through this big mental struggle or um, anxiety before they come into class and then as soon as the class is over they're like oh here we go again what's going to happen today Mm -hmm. so i'm I'm wondering if and i think i think yeah i just wanted to right because i'm thinking you know like i didn't totally touch on it in the article but i'm i'm really hearing that like a lot of the listeners might be health and physical edu- um, educators. And it's like, you know, I mean, I think when we think about privilege, we often like think about it like as a static thing, right? But I mean, if we think about membership and privilege, you know, like privilege, privilege can look like a lot of things. Like it, it can be like a position of authority. So like a gym teacher, you know, you have a different role or like a, or a star athlete, you know, or like someone, yeah, just like moving through the world um, without thinking about it too much. And what I think is really important to think about membership is like how we can actually share that with other people. And this is, you know, this is like, I wouldn't write about this. This might be simplistic. I don't know what, you know, the critical trans scholars or the critical race scholars think about this, but I really, you know, when I walk into the locker room and someone smiles at me or like, and, or like, you know, or a gym teacher is like, Hey, what do you need today? Or something like that. There are so many ways we can share membership with other people. And if you're cool and like you can just move through space without thinking about it, you have a great power to share that with other people, mm-hmm. you know, and gym teachers, you know, my gym teacher saved my life, like made it like completely changed the course of it. And so I just like, you know, it, knowing, anticipating what people need is like a super power. And if you can, and you know, we know what trans and non-binary students need is just like a little bit of extra consideration because they're not anticipated in this like boy, girl, male, female, um, uh, you know, like, like dichotomy, but they are exceptionally resistant. They are exceptionally resourceful. Like it, and, and all they might need is just like a little, you know, like, like space to change in your office or like something like that. And they know they, they can probably think of exactly what they need to make it work. And, and so, um, yeah, just that like activism can go a really long way in terms of changing people's relationship to physical activity. Absolutely. So what did you do? Like, can you just overview the methods briefly so people understand what the study itself was? Yeah, I'll do it really briefly because methods are always pretty boring. Eh? Um, I did, I did interviews. I just did, I did interviews. We chatted and it wasn't like there was no script. There were like some questions I wanted to ask, but really each, each conversation evolved. 
you know, the best interview is one where like, where you're changing it all the time. Um, I mean, yeah. So, uh, so it evolved. It was just a discussion. And then, and then I did some boring stuff with data and codes and, you know, like, yeah, I won't bore you though. And then just found out the themes and tried to think about, okay, what strategies did people use? Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of information on how like, you know, trans and non-binary people are oppressed and hurt, bullied and excluded. And that's all really true and important. But I wanted to look at like how, how we're agentic, how like we get around these systems that aren't designed for us, how we get to physical activity anyway as well. I want to look at that as well. So were the participants adults or uh, students or about what age? How old were they? Yeah, I tried to get a spread of age. I mean, they were all over 18, but some were like, you know, I think it was like 22 to 60. Um, And, you know, like I really, I, we call it purposive sampling where it like, cause you know, if you, I, I want, I didn't want to have a bunch of white people, only white people who look like me, who were like athletic like me. So I tried to, you know, get folks of color and I did, but half the sample on disability as well. Uh, it, like both visible and non-visible and, uh, yeah, and age. So you talked about some strategies. So can you talk about the main strategies the participants used? to access physical activity and avoid the discomfort and alienation and sometimes the abuse that they experienced uh, outside of locker rooms. Yeah, these strategies were super ingenious. And also like, it's sad to, you're gonna be like, it's sad to hear it because it really shows a lot about their experience, right? So, um, you know, like folks would pick a locker, like they'd pick their gym, not based on like which gym was the best, not based on like which gym's the closest, not based on which gym is the cheapest. They would act a lot, like some would actually pick the gym based on which locker room was the least bad. Um, so I, hopefully that will show you like how, how uh, influential locker room experiences can be. What else? Um, trying to get around using the locker room, you know, so like changing in washrooms, changing beforehand. You know, I had one participant who would wear a wet swimsuit home after, right? You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like, yeah. that's not comfortable. Um, what else? Managing, the, so like in the locker room, right? So that's stuff to get a, around the locker room. In the locker room, um, you know, uh, managing visibility. So like trying, to, like trying to be seen as little as possible, right? So, you know, you wait for the people to come out. Like you hear people come in, you're like, okay, I'm gonna stay in this area until people leave and I'll go. Or like um, trying to hide their face, uh, trying to hide voices. So like one of one of like for trans women, especially well, and trans men actually, like for, for trans people in general, like voice is like a voice can be tricky because it can out you as mm-hmm. trans when maybe you pass as cis otherwise. So they like there were stories from interviews about like being asked questions and just like not speaking. Like they couldn't, speak. they didn't feel safe to yeah. speak. They, yeah. they knew if they spoke, they'd be in trouble. Um, you know, hurrying to like, like stories of like folks like literally dashing, right? Cause yeah. then that, like the more time you spend in that space, the more likely you are to like have someone confront you or, um, you know, tell you you don't belong there, mm-hmm. get afraid, get upset. That was a big, like, that's a big thing is you don't, especially in the women's locker room, you don't like none of them wanted to be there at the expense of a woman who'd be afraid like that. So it's like, it just really fraught space. Um, what else? A big one was like bringing in an ally, you know, so going with someone else, which I don't know about you, but I like to go to the gym whenever the heck I want to go. And then like, sometimes I like to be alone, just have my earphones in. Um, but having an ally really like sort of constrains that independence. Um, and it's, and it's, and it's hard. So, yeah, those, those are some of the big strategies. Um, yeah, and you think about like the, the example of the person who had a you know wet uh, swimsuit that they were going home in, which is one uncomfortable period, but two, if you're driving your own car home, different than if you're taking public transportation home and you don't have yeah. access to your own car, like you. So then you think about, okay, I don't feel comfortable changing in this locker room, taking this swimsuit off. And then you have to go on a metro or a bus to get home and then walk. That activity now is out. 
Like, you're not going to do that. You're not going to go through in the middle of... Or you're going to have a rash. Yeah, or, like, going home in the middle of winter. Like, people swim in winter inside, like, aquatics halls. And then the thought that you can't get comfortable on your commute home. Um, you know, I, I thought those the strategies were interesting, and you start thinking about... And these are, like, if you think about the the people that you had in your study, they had the choice of where to go. Whereas if you think about health and physical education, right. the physical education teacher uh, can't say like, oh, would you like to shop around for different uh, locker rooms in the local area? Like it's just, that's just what you get. Like you go into a school that is where you have to get dressed or undressed. Exactly. And this is why I'm, I'm studying, uh, I, this is part of why I really wanted to study the experience of you know, trans and non-binary kids in schools, but not just trans and non-binary kids. Because you think about it, okay, you think about this. The locker, binary gender locker rooms for adults, the barriers they face there deter them from accessing public space and physical activity, right? Okay? Think about kids. They don't have a choice about this. They go into the locker room. Mm -hmm. They don't. You know, you don't go into the locker You try to change in the bathroom, the teacher gets mad at you. At least that's my experience, mm -hmm. right? So... I would hypothesize that rather than the like, I'm gonna I'm gonna guess that it means they don't come out. I'm gonna guess that like if you have to use a locker room and you don't have like it, it, you have to pick one. Well, you can't usually as a kid you don't get to pick right. either, right? right? Tommy, you go in there, you know. Like I'm gonna guess that like I w I can't imagine a lot and, and all the interviewees I spoke about spoke with they all came out as trans or started expressing themselves differently started changing their hair or their clothing after after they were through school because the locker room and the restroom in their school like was like like you could you couldn't come out you okay. couldn't experiment with your gender you couldn't because you had to go in the space yeah so and i just think there's also often so many like easy solutions you know like even like i had one interviewee he used to change in the bathroom and then he but but like and then he and then he was ready to work out, but in the winter he had to cart a whole coat, you know, and boots, and he'd try to bring it into the weight room and just be like, and and the the weight staff were like, what's your problem, man? You yeah. won't follow the rules. Yeah. Like you have an attitude problem. And the kid, he just he wanted to work out and he didn't know what else to do. But you know, if there were locker rooms like outside of a male and female, like just lockers on the wall or like a space in the office that you could just like stick it or something. That just, it would open up so many more possibilities, you know? Yeah. And it, it's interesting that you brought up this idea of like them being combative or them being like defiant. Mm -hmm. And that's how the, the educator or the coach or the supervisor experiences that. Whereas that's not the person's, like that's not the kids or whoever, like that's not what they're trying to do. They're not trying to be combative or not, you know, give the teacher or the instructor a hard time. It's just like, well, these are the situations. I, I'd rather choose to get in trouble with you than to go through into this situation that I find terrifying. Or So I think it's interesting to reset and kind of think about why are they doing that? And it's the same thing we talk about in, mm -hmm. in you know, teacher education programs. If like a kid who's giving you a really hard time, it's probably not because they really hate you or are giving you a hard time. It's, there's something going on in their life and if you just have a conversation with them, it could get resolved. If you discipline them right away mm -hmm. and call them out for their bad behavior, it doesn't fix the problem. It doesn't fix the relationship that is is hurting. Um, so let me let me ask you yeah. the last question. And when we think about places to practice, uh, we I might consider how I feel there, the quality of the facility, the distance from home. However, in your discussion, it's really clear that specifically the locker room is one of the main aspects considered by trans people. And also, it's really scary to think that they think about locker rooms and they think about safety. So I'm wondering if you can share some examples of changes that organizations or the facilities that have these locker rooms can make to minimize the lack of membership and engagement on physical activity by trans people. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, I mean, I think a big one is like, is, is providing an alternative to, to like a male female locker. 
right? Like for a lot of people, a male-female locker room, including including a lot of trans and non-binary people, that, that space can be like, is really important, right? So I'm not saying do away with gendered locker rooms and make it like all gender, like you, you mentioned in Finland. Mm-hmm. Like I'm sure that's a, that's a possibility. But a lot of, for a lot of people, that would create another barrier. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Right? And whether that's cisgender or trans, right? So, so don't do away with binary gender stuff, but provide an alternative and like a, like a meaningful one. And that means like, it should, like an all gender alternative, not like a family restroom or a family locker room. Because actually, if you think about it, and I'm, I mean, like a lot of trans and non-binary people are way less likely to go into a family locker room or family restroom in a binary gendered one because you know you go to family that you better have a kid otherwise mm. like mm. you're kind of like risking looking like a perv or something so um yeah so so that's really important um and also you know like thinking about it like think like think about it like what about the what about getting into a pool you know there can be like another way to get in and that should be advertised so people don't have to ask for it you know like often there's like a office way into the pool for the lifeguard a sign you know all gender entrance because the idea is really is really to try to get so so you know kids and adults don't have to ask for it because when an accommodation and like is different than an anticipation and membership you know like membership shouldn't involve you having to be like hi you know i'm here can i where can i go and it's like oh go in this like thing we'll give you a key you know an, an alternative space Membership means being anticipated. Hey, this space here is for trans and non-binary people. We know, like, they're in every class, you know, whether they're out or not at this point. They're in every, like, it's like, it's like almost 4% of the population by some count is trans. I mean, I don't know, like, about all areas, if they're visible or not, but um, we really need to start anticipating folks rather than just accommodating. Mm -hmm. Like, once they've requested, that's that's not as fun. It's not fun to, like, have to accommodate, you know. So let's say in an ideal world, I have uh, men's, women's, and uh, all gender locker room. Like, obviously, the men's and women's would be larger, and then there'd be like a a place for all gender. Now, as a very naive question, um, would a trans woman and a trans man feel equally comfortable going into that all gender restroom? Like... Would that be an accommodation that most yeah. people would enjoy? Or like, would that be like, oh, I want separate, you know, you know what I mean? No, 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 no. We don't like, you know, like, I mean, I don't know if it, like, it, that's a decent response, you know? Like, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I, I don't think we need like a trans woman's, you know, and you're also going to find a lot of cisgender people go into the all gender one as well, right? Just like a third category, you know, you find like, a dad with his daughter can go into that one or like a mom and her son, you know? And like the idea is just for everybody who doesn't like who wants to, and the only thing is it's got to have showers, right? Like, cause it sucks if you go into like, you have to go use the mm-hmm. shower mm-hmm. in the men's or the women's. And it's like, Oh, okay. And this is dirty and it's like too small. And, but just as long as it's like got like, like decent, like something decent and comparable that's good. Just that one all gender, you know, like thing. And the other thing is you can't force people to go into that one. That's where it gets tricky. Where it's like, oh, like, look, there's Allie, the gender weirdo. Like, what what are they doing in the women's washroom? You know, mm-hmm. we have this, we have this, like, space for our gender rejects. Right, Put them right, in there. Right. Like, that's, well, that's, like, illegal. And also, mm-hmm. like, you know, I mean, I guess it depends where you are. But... And I think another thing is signage too, right? Like there is something really powerful about having a signage like on the women's space or on the men's space. That's like, this is like, this space is like trans inclusive. We will welcome in this space, everyone who identifies as a man or a woman. And there's like been a lot of resistance to that. Cause people are like, Oh, well obviously cisgender men are going to go into the women's washroom and look at girls. And like, like that's happened once in New York and that wasn't a trans woman, trans woman like it's just that's not happening that's not happening it's just it's just not like you know well i i really appreciate you sharing your work um it's been really really interesting to listen to i think it's very helpful for uh educators as well to listen to or sport coaches to kind of understand what you know you really elevated the voices of the people that you interviewed and i 
I look forward to our conversation in five years about seeing seeing how this how this really shaped out because uh, I know that in the country I live in there's a lot of resistance in certain states and not all states but in certain states to a lot of these policies and you know even even this week there were there are legislations passed that kind of excluded a whole uh, segment of of a population in a state. Um, so I, I do hope that your research reaches the people who are making the decisions and and building building buildings uh, that can accommodate uh, for this. So um, I'll I'll link to the article in the show notes, and um, if you have any uh, questions and stuff, I'll, I'll put your um, Twitter uh, profile in there as well. Or your handle. Uh, so, Allie, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. It's been a blast. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Awesome. And so, uh, that's all we got for you on this one. Uh, I also want to thank Alba Rodriguez for her work in uh, preparing uh, this podcast. And thanks, everybody. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, Our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also going to get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.